0: And I want to just take a moment, um, for those who don't know him, to introduce um, one of my favorite people in the world, who's going to be our guest preacher this morning, Peter Labar. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so uh, um, Peter, um, not only is he uh, in the ordination process, process, he's a postulant for ordination. He's pursuing holy orders as a priest in the Anglican Church. Hmm. And he's been in that place for a while that's kind of been a little bit suspended in midair because he has a calling that he still feels very called to, which is to do campus ministry through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And uh, one of the one of the things about Peter is um, when Carissa and I were doing IV staff here and we left to go to seminary, uh, Peter was one of the three staff that were left here to, um, to continue that ministry and to cause it to be fruitful. He was a student of ours and became a dear friend of ours. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Between him and the other staff and even the staff that have have come since then, like like Sarah and most recently Tina and stuff like that, the ministry has continued and has flourished and thrived and been fruitful. So um, Peter is not just a friend. um, He's not just the bishop's son. (laughs) uh, But he's just one of the young ministers that I truly respect the most in the world, Mm. just to see the way he loves God's people, to see the way he devotes himself to the mission, to see the way that... He um, loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and tries to love his neighbor as himself. Hmm. So uh, we're grateful to have him this morning uh, as, as he's doing a little, little mini teaching internship. Um, and so you'll see him pop up a couple more times uh, this summer for his seminary class. Um, but I'll let him pray for his own message. But let's just give Peter a hand. Hmm.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Taylor, ditto, bruh. Love you. Um, and it's so great to be with you. I was um, just as everybody was praying about how grateful they were at the beginning of the service to be a part of this congregation. That was what was exploding in my heart. Um, I'm just so grateful for you all. We'll be talking this morning about um, the grace that we need in the first place to do the commandments. Um, where does that come from? Um, let's pray. Lord, your word is so good. And following your commandments is so good. Jesus, you said that that was your food. We want it to be our food too. Help us to receive it as that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. OK, so I want you to think about a time when you were utterly helpless and pitiful. What was a pitiful moment for you? The first thing that comes to mind uh, for me, I can't believe I'm saying this, was a, was a time that is now comical, looking back at it. It's, I don't want to be too graphic. I'll just say that I had a fairly common problem that's usually solved with a little uh, preparation H but it was so severe that it landed me overnight in the hospital. It was awful. I could barely walk. I was a mess. I was absolutely pitiful. I remember just thinking, how am I gonna tell people what's wrong with me when they're like, why were you in the hospital? I was like, well, um, and so I just tried to keep my mouth shut about it. Um, My family was utterly compassionate, patient with me, took care of me but I just remember how humiliated and pitiful I felt in that moment. This week in our gospel reading, Jesus tells us a story about a man who is isolated, humiliated, helpless, but is rescued by an unlikely passerby. This is the story that we often know as the Good Samaritan. And if you have any kind of Christian background, you probably are familiar with the basics of this story but I want to walk through it and highlight some of the details that may make this story feel a little bit fresh. And then I want to focus on three people in this story. So let's walk through this story first with fresh eyes. So Jesus is approached by a lawyer. And remember, this is not a separation of church and state society, right? The law that we are talking about here is what we would call the Old Testament, or more specifically, the first five books of the Bible. So the lawyer here is a Bible expert, and he asks, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by essentially saying, you're the Bible expert, you tell me. To which the lawyer responds with a combination of two passages, Deuteronomy 6, 4, taken from um, the passage known as the Shema, you shall love the Lord with all your, your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Then he takes Leviticus 9, 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself, and he tacks those two together. And Jesus responds by saying, you've, ex- you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. My translation is, way to go, know it all what you're asking me for, right? <laughs> then it says the lawyer was seeking to justify himself. And he asks, who is my neighbor? Then Jesus tells a story. A man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Right off the bat, this is a juicy story, right? Jerusalem is the city of God. It's the city on the hill. It's the city on the high, city of the righteous. And this man leaves it for Jericho. Jericho, way back when the people of Israel came into the land that they were promised, Jericho was the first enemy stronghold God's people encountered. They walked around it, they blew some horns, it fell down. Right? And after the victory, Joshua cursed the man who rebuilt the city. Right? Jericho is the city of eternal rubble. The man in Jesus' story leaves eternal paradise, Jerusalem, and he goes down. He descends to Jericho. And so, unsurprisingly, he runs into trouble as he's on his way to the place of trouble. He's stripped. He's left for dead by robbers, he's beaten. The robbers take his dignity, they take his health, they take his wealth, and they leave him for isolation. But thank goodness a priest shows up. (laughs) Someone who's devoted his whole life to taking taking the needs of the people to God, who intercedes for the needs of the people. He's an avenue of redemption of God for the healing of the people. And he hops to the other side of the road (laughs) and rocks right on by. But it's okay, because a Levite shows up. This is the tribe of Levi. They devoted themselves to facilitating the worship of God. In our context, these are the church people, man. They make church happen. We can trust these people to do right. Maybe they will, nope. Other side of the road, right on by. And then a Samaritan shows up. Now, this is uber juicy, right? Samaritans, here's what they did. They took some aspects of the law and then they mixed it with pagan worship. This is a huge no-no. These, uh, the people of God were exiled to Babylon because they participated in this kind of synchronistic behavior, right? Samaritans were so bad that Jewish people would add days to their journey just to avoid going to Samaria. This is what puts you in time out in Babylon, right? This kind of Babylon, or this kind of behavior. But then, this fellow with this dangerous religion is the one who lives out loving his neighbor as himself. The Samaritan saves the wayward man left for dead. The Samaritan is the rescuer. The Samaritan is the one who proves to be a good neighbor. This is such an embarrassing part of the story that when Jesus asked who proved to be the good neighbor to the lawyer, the lawyer can't even say Samaritan. (laughs) He says, the one who showed mercy. (laughs) Right? And Jesus ends by saying, go and do likewise. Now let's focus on three people in, these story, in this story and how it relates to us. First, let's look at the, the lawyer and this interaction a little bit more closely. Let's unpack the lawyer's answer when Jesus asks him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer responds, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So let's, what's, what's this mean, right? First, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That passage from Deuteronomy. Um, piecing different answers from different scholars, I would say your heart, your soul, that's your guts, right? That's your emotions. That's your feels, right? Love the Lord with that. And then love the Lord with your strength. To the Jewish year, this wasn't just your uh, physical or mental ability. This was also your resources, your wealth. Right? Love the Lord with your strength. Love the Lord with your mind. So, love the Lord with your intentionality, with your thoughtfulness. Now, Hebrew thought doesn't kind of compartmentalize humanity as much as Greek thought does. So, basically, this answer just means love the Lord with all of you, with everything that you have. So, if you're to give the Lord all of you and love the Lord with all of you, How are you supposed to love your neighbor as yourself unless to love your neighbor is to love God? If that's the case, if you fail to love your neighbor, you fail to love God. C.S. Lewis explains this beautifully. I might detest, he says, something which I have done. Nevertheless, I... oh. Uh, he actually explains something else differently, which is what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So if we fail to love God when we fail to love our neighbor, and we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself, then how the heck are we supposed to love our neighbor as ourself? That's such a strange idea. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does that look like, right? Because that becomes really important. It's the natural add-on to loving the Lord your God with all your heart mind, soul, and strength. And C.S. Lewis explains this beautifully. He says, I might detest something I've done, but nevertheless, I do not cease to love myself. In other words, that definite distinction that Christians make between hating the sin and loving the sinner is one thing that you have been making in your own case since you were born. (laughs) Love is not an affectionate feeling but a steady wish for a loved person's ultimate good as so far as it can be attained. So Lewis is basically saying, look, you know you can be a jerk, but you still make yourself a sandwich, right? And you know that you can be dishonest, and you may beat yourself up about it, but you still go to, your, uh, to the beach with your friends, right? We treat ourselves with love, even though we know that we are sinners. So treat your neighbors with love even though you know that they are sinners. Love your neighbor as yourself. And looking at the answer from the lawyer, we actually see just how high of a standard this is. The depth of love that Jesus is calling us to. And we can either just wave a white flag or we can try to justify ourselves by finding a loophole. And of course the lawyer tries to justify himself by finding a loophole, right? He says... Who is my neighbor? And this question just shows how out of uh, touch he is with his own track record. Like, really, lawyer, you think that you've loved the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength, and maybe, just maybe, if the bar is pretty low for who your neighbor is, then you can count on admission to eternal life, right? But as Jesus tells this parable, we find out that our neighbor is everyone. The early church father, Jerome, one of the early church leaders wrote, some think that their neighbor is their brother, family, relative, or their kinsman. Our Lord teaches us our neighbor is in the gospel of the parable of a certain man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everyone is, is our neighbor. If we are to love God with everything we have, and love our neighbor with everything we have, and everyone is our neighbor, then no one can live up to do that, to inherit eternal life. The white flag is the right response, not trying to find loopholes and justify yourself. We have to give up being justifiers as the lawyer was forced to do and realize that we are the half-dead man in this story. So let's understand the message of the half-dead man in this story. We were made in God's image, but we went down to Jericho. We were made in God's image, but we said, forget that, and decided to take the road away from the city of God, down to the city of our own desires. The prodigal son takes the road away from his father, and famine strikes, and he's feeding pigs, The man in our story takes the road away from the city of God, and he's attacked by robbers. It's almost like Jesus is trying to tell us something. I think Jesus has a point here that we need a rescue. We need a rescue because we really mess things up. I mean, we cosmically mess things up. Our own wanderings have led us to spiritual and often physical destruction. And then we spend so much time trying to cover up the loss of our pride and dignity. We give so much energy to trying to convince people that we're not the helpless, half-dead, and lifeless people that we really are. We are the ones on the other side of the road. We don't run from it. We embrace our helplessness. I had two students in who who are new this year, and in separate conversations, they came up and they told me, wow, I can't believe how open some of the student leaders are about their own sins and shortcomings. And I thought, thank God we're doing something right. Right? The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I'm aware of just how helpless and half-dead I am. My goodness, incarnation, embrace it. Embrace it even though it goes against the currents of our own culture. Our basic kind of two main political ideologies lead us away from embracing our own sinful nature. So there's the kind of typical conservative mind strap or mindset, where we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? We individually focus on our ability to do good, but fail to realize that we're dead. It's wrought with hypocrisy. Do you really believe that hard work is going to save you, that making six figures is a sign that you're on the right track? Someone asked a recent conservative president if he asked God for forgiveness. And he said, I'm not sure. I just try and go and do a better job from there. I don't think of something I do wrong. I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. In that mindset, you don't need Jesus for a rescue. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can make it right. But really, if we're honest, we're half dead on the side of the road that leads to destruction. And then there's the typical kind of progressive or liberal mindset where... Evil is out there in the corporations, right? In the capitalist system. And it is of course, but it's in you too. And it's the same evil, right? You can be awake to the corruption in the system but asleep to your own evil. You can speak against the horrors of colonialization, and rightly so, while late, night at, late at night your web clicks are fueling a corrupt system of sex slavery and oppressing thousands around the world. So to the progressive, the evil is in us too, not just out there. And to the conservative, the American dream doesn't heal our wretchedness. Jesus calls us to do what nobody wants to do, is to recognize the plank in our own eye. When we join the family of God, we embrace how much trouble we are in and how capable, incapable we are of getting ourselves out of it. We embrace just how far we've wandered from holiness down to the accursed lands. Those who are sick know they need a doctor and we all need a doctor. We all need a rescue. So now it's time to give our attention to the rescuer in this story. Because incarnation, someone came down to where we are. Someone saw us when we needed a rescue. They saw us and they, he saw us and he had compassion on us. Romans 5.10, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God. Ephesians 2.5, even though we were dead in our sins, Jesus gave us life brothers and sisters, the man who we treated as an enemy has compassion for us. We have a merciful neighbor. Jesus is the Samaritan. Let's look and see Christ in the Samaritan in this story. The good Samaritan loves the man with all his heart, his soul, his compassion, his mercy. The Samaritan loves him with his strength. He gives him oil, right? He gives him his resources. He gives him wine. He gives him his donkey. He gives him his money. He gives him his time. The Samaritan loves him with his mind. He's incredibly intentional, staying with the half-dead man even when everybody else has stepped away. He communicates with the innkeeper. He's thinking through the needs of the half-dead man, and he even anticipates future need. Even though they should be counted as enemies, The Samaritan loves this man as he loves himself. What the robbers have taken from the man, his dignity, his money, his health, the Samaritan redeems all of it. Incarnation, Jesus is not Santa who gives you good things if you're good. Jesus is a redeemer who takes areas of brokenness in your life and turns them into areas of joy. The, wound that, the wounds that drained Jesus of his life became a river of life for the world. The Roman cross, an instrument of terror and brutality for an authoritarian regime, became a symbol of hope and peace in the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul, the chief murderer of Christians, became their chief shepherd. I've seen in college students over, oh man, I thought I wasn't going to cry on this one. <laughs> Over and over, I watch college students be redeemed so that their areas of pain and brokenness become avenues of grace and healing. When we love our neighbor with everything we have, we do it because he first loved us. He gave everything for us. And when we've been redeemed by the good Samaritan, we go and do likewise. So brothers and sisters, I just want to end with an exhortation. An exhortation for you to embrace your need for Christ's mercy. There is no question the man needed the compassionate and merciful love of the Samaritan. He didn't try to hide it. He couldn't hide it. And yet, in the moments of egregious sin, our moments of egregious sin, we often try to hide it from God and from other people. I want to give you an example from my own life. Some of you might have heard me talk about this. Um, In college, the Lord gave me really tremendous victory over habitual lust. But there was one particular summer after a former girlfriend had broken up for me and I was just like deep in my lustful ways. I realized that in those moments, I never turned to Jesus and pleaded for his compassionate mercy and love. Like, after I I messed up, I would usually uh, just watch a planet Earth, (laughs) right? Because I knew that I didn't want to do any more bad things, but I felt that in those times, I couldn't go to God because I was too ashamed about the way that I felt. I'd left Jerusalem for Jericho and I was just too embarrassed by my half-dead self. So instead, I would turn on the TV and listen to David Attenborough talk about humpback whales blowing air through their blowholes, right? But I realized I was not really trusting in God in my darkest moments. Jesus was looking at in those moments, at me with compassion and mercy. Those darkest, half-dead moments. Those were the moments that Jesus drew near to me. He offered me his blood, right? The wine. He longs to anoint me with the presence of his Holy Spirit. I began to invite Jesus into those half-dead moments, and it changed me. And I'm not saying that all you need is one moment of spiritual breakthrough and everything gets better forever. But I am saying that we have to remember that Jesus looks on us with compassion in our darkest hour. We are missing something if we're hiding from Jesus in those moments. Yes, we need to confess to each other, um, but we need to remember that we're confessing to God too. There's a German theologian named uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he talks about confessing to each other. It's harder to confess sometimes the sins of our brother to the sins to someone else. Uh, I think we might need a little assistant here. Oh. Okay, one second. I think we have a parking problem. Um, So we're, we're scared we might need, somebody might need to move a car for a second. Uh, talk about confessing. Um, <laughs> um, we're scared to confess to our neighbors, but we're not scared to confess to God sometimes. And think about that. Of course, in our moments of anguish, sometimes we have a hard time turning to God, but the, in confessing to our neighbor, we are receiving an instrument of God's mercy to us from the lips of our neighbor, right? And if we have a problem confessing to our neighbor, that shows that we're not really dealing with the gravity of confessing to God, right? So we confess to both God and to our neighbor, as James says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. So I just want you to think about the moments in your life when you felt farthest from God. In those moments, Jesus looked on with you with compassion, ready to pour out his redemptive love on you, as the Samaritan did. As we prepare to receive the wine that Jesus offers us at the table today, may we not hide our wounds. From him. May we come to him as he came to us, knowing his compassionate love that he first came to us in our pitiful, broken state. Some of you have tasted of this before, and I just pray that the Lord would set your heart on fire again as we remember the good news of God's redemptive love. Jesus, we need you. Desperately, if we are to love as the Good Samaritan loved, you have to first love us. Lord, may we not hide our helpless and half-dead selves from you. Lord, may we come to you, receive your love, even though we were your enemies, and be sent to carry the redemptive love that you gave us to go and do likewise. In Jesus' name,